Hello and welcome back to the OC, bitch. It's keeping up with the Kardashians. Sorry, I said Kardashians. Sorry. <laughs> Keep it in. There's our intro right there. <laughs> Shit. All right. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Hey, we have our cold open. California. Keeping up with the Coens, an OC box set rewatch podcast. Hello and welcome back to the OC, bitch. It's Keeping Up with the Coens, episode number three. We're still here. My name's Ryan Drake. I'm joined, as always, by Chelsea Trinidad and Dylan Irwin. We are all coming to you from the great state of Oklahoma, and we're here to break down four more episodes of the OC. Chelsea, Dylan, how you feeling? Uh, I'm pretty pumped. I think that this a disc really took us some places and set up some things that are going to pop up again throughout the rest of the series. Ryan, if my excitement were COVID-19 numbers, I would be the state of Oklahoma (laughs) right now, to be completely frank. Uh, We are introduced to a whole bunch of new characters, a whole bunch of new ideas, and a whole bunch of stuff that really makes the OC the OC. And I'm personally excited about this disc, which I'm referring to as the Marissa disc, uh, because it, of course, bears the uh, image, uh, a graven image, if you will, of one uh, Marissa Cooper. Daughter of Tate Donovan. Yes, daughter of Tate Donovan. It's also appropriately the Marissa disc because all the episodes really move her storyline right along, don't they? Yep. So let us begin with episode five, The Outsider. Dylan, hit me with some stats. So The Outsider aired on September 2nd, 2003 to 9.1 million viewers. I'm pretty sure that's the biggest number we've seen so far. And spoilers, that number's just going to grow. This one was written by Melissa Rosenberg. And what an episode it was. See, did you guys like this episode? I feel like it, it was a bit of a throwaway. I didn't love it. It was a little bit too dramatic for me. You're going to find as we go through this season that I really enjoy drama, but it's a very specific kind of drama. Like, I don't enjoy the class warfare, I guess, that came out in this episode. <laughs> we get seven and a half minutes of Sandy Cohen screen time, which we, we're dropping quickly. We're dropping like a stone. If you remember, the first episode was like 15 minutes, so his screen time's been cut in half. Um, but Ooh. as we get d- deeper into this disc, it starts to drop off again until we get uh, to episode eight, where his screen yes. time comes back up. Makes a big, big comeback, just like COVID-19 has done in our state. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the very official fancy OC fandom wiki summary of this episode states, Ryan gets a job. <laughs> That'd be funny. Well, I, I can't wait to read you guys. I don't know how you're watching, um, if you're watching the actual disc or what. I'm watching on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, the which is weird that the OC is even on HBO Max. Yeah. Um, here's a tease for the next episode for the, for the next episode of the OC we're gonna do here in about ten minutes. Um, the episode description on HBO Max is an all timer. It's really good. But for this episode, Ryan gets a job and meets Donnie, a teenager from Corona. Seth mm. decides to invite Donnie to Holly's beach party because, of course, Holly's beach house is open for business. Uh, but Donnie's attendance ends with Luke getting shot. Also. You know- Julie Julie tells Jimmy that she wants a divorce. So we begin with what I believe to be off the top, the musical moment of the episode, which is a, a montage set to Spoon's The Way We Get By. This was my first introduction to Spoon as a band. I really enjoyed this song. It was on uh, the first OC 
uh, mix CD or whatever you want to call it, the first OC soundtrack that came out. I would say Spoon's one of those bands that I always really like. I would never consider them one of my favorite bands, but every time they do something, I pay attention to it. Spoon is one of those bands for me, kind of like the Strokes, where I just feel cool when I listen to them. So I don't know if I actually like them or if I like how it makes me feel when I listen to Spoon. Uh, I think right after this... I completely understand that. Right around the time this episode came out, my timeline's probably off, but I started to get into Spoon as well. And I remember I bought Goo Goo Gaga and I remember like not liking it at all. And then I rediscovered it in college and loved it. So much like the journey that Marissa is going to go through on this disc, I went through a similar journey with Spoon. Okay, so this is like ultimate um, ops girl, ops teen uh, situation we have going on, but as with all the other girls my age, whenever you found a song that you were really digging on, sometimes you'd like doodle the lyrics on your notebook or in your little moleskin or whatever. So oh, I have that going. I think I had like colored pencils or something. I don't know. I was a fucking dork. It's cool. My parents come across it and they were like, you get high in backseats of cars. We get high and i mean that's that's basically my dog ate my homework no it's like song lyrics mom and dad first of all i didn't know that was only something that angsty aughts girls did because i specifically (laughs) remember going to grandy's and getting one of those styrofoam takeout things and writing the lyrics excuse me carving the lyrics with a paper clip (laughs) to i believe you okay i believe you but my tommy gun don't buy brand new into my grandy's styrofoam and my parents were just like well this is par for the course for dylan but so i'm glad to know that we both had that in common i want to say shout out to grandy's i haven't had grandy's in forever and i miss it and i don't even know if they're still a company but there's one in oklahoma city and i think about their roles daily incredible well we've wasted a good two minutes of our time we're talking about uh spoon and grandy's so uh we'll move on from there i guess if we if we if we're ready this is kind of my big my big overarching question of this whole disc i guess kind of is as i'm watching obviously this is a tv show it's dramatized but this episode starts with them at the lobster restaurant uh which we'll get to we'll get to that place in a minute but like it's ryan and seth Let's assume that Ryan's been a Cohen for, what, maybe two weeks? Is that even probably less than two weeks, right? Right. Yeah. But they are already 100% in on this whole Marissa thing. Like, that's he's so preoccupied. Like, it's his life now. And I just, and I, I felt this again when I was watching through the entire disc. Like, Ryan is completely over every other part. Like, the fact that he left his mom and moved in with the new family. You know what I mean? That was a big issue yeah. for me, too. No, that makes sense. The only the only thing that gives us an indicator of he's still getting used to his new bearings is like, oh, now that I'm living with this family, I guess I should get a job since ostensibly, you know, I should contribute to my new living situation. But that's really the only like awkwardness or settling that he needs to do. He's not at all thinking about like, do I need to inform relatives? Do I need to like close up loose ends with old friends or old girlfriends as we'll learn about later this season? He seems to kind of just be okay this is my life now this is the girl i'm after this like i am the star of my own life at this moment ryan has mail right like he gets subscriptions to things people have to mail he has to like change his address we never see that scene yeah that's true he i feel like too and this is something that i'll get into later especially in episode eight but i truly do feel like he goes all in kind of like you said just for marissa and like will drop everything and do whatever she wants and i it's like to an unhealthy extent and i have a note later that talks about is they're in an emotionally abusive relationship and they're not even in a relationship i mean i guess that's the most potentially high school thing about this show 
is that Ryan is so willing to forget all of this great stuff that's happening that he's just going to be like, oh, wait, but here's something. I, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm, I'm from, maybe it's a Chino thing. You know, he's in Chino, man. So maybe that's just something he does naturally. But um, do you want to talk about this job? So, yeah, I wanna, one of the things I want to talk about is this, uh, this restaurant job because I think it goes – I think this is – I think he has that job for this disc. And once this disc is gone, we never see that restaurant again, I, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a ser- very serendipitous firing as they're out on the patio or someone just gets fired and Ryan turns around and he's like, well, I guess I'll just work here, which is great. Mm. Bush era jobs were booming. How do we, what do we think of Donnie? We meet Donnie. He's uh, Ryan's boss, I guess. He's kind of the manager of this place. And Donnie is allegedly a teenager, even though he looks older than all of us. Um, what do we think? What do we make of Donnie? He seems like trouble. If Sandy's eyebrows give him the power to do good, I think that Donnie's eyebrows give him the power to do evil. Um, and I've been referring to him as coronavirus because he swept in from Corona and is just infecting this town with bad vibes. <laughs> he is the first kind of character of, the, of many that we will eventually see throughout the series that just kind of show up for an episode, cause trouble, and then leave, and then they're gone. So the kind of the, the main plot of this episode involves Ryan working at this restaurant. He meets his new friend, Donnie. Seth's a little jealous, which I thought was cute. We also see that Ryan starts going to parties with Donnie, I guess, in order to bond their yeah. friendship. Uh, one party in particular, before they go to Holly's Beach House, is a party in Long Beach, California. Been there. I was there last year, actually. It's a great place. Um, my notes on this party are just that it is uh, insane. This is bigger and worse than the party that we saw in episode one where we were like, this doesn't exist. But uh, this party definitely uh, was happening in the context of the show. And it's insane to me. There's like strippers. Uh, Actually, they're called crazy honeys. Oh, that's that's true. Oh, yeah. House party in Long Beach. Six kegs. Crazy honeys. Have you ever (laughs) referred to a woman as a honey? Absolutely not. I yeah, I just that. I guess that parlance, maybe that's just Corona parlance, but I um, I don't think I ever have, but I don't know. I There is one thing, a very important thing, nay, the most important thing in this episode that I need to talk about really quick. Sure. Hi, it's Dylan, and welcome to Comic Book Minute. Oh so after gosh. a night of partying with I coronavirus. Feel, I feel sabotaged. I feel like this, yeah, you snuck up on me. Okay, go ahead, Dylan. So Ryan walks in to find Seth reading comics at the breakfast table, and Seth says he's reading, quote, The New Legion, part two of five. Now, Legion may be recognizable to some of you as David Holler, the son of Professor X, and the protagonist in the FX TV show starring Dan Stevens, hot. However, the series he's referring to is The Legion, which is not at all related to the FX TV series. The five-part series Seth uh, is reading is called Dream Crime, and part two that he is reading was released on May 28th, 2003, which also throws our August timeline completely out of whack. But this has been your Comic Book Minute. Wow. Thank you, Dylan. That was very informative. I feel like I definitely didn't fall asleep there. Thank you. Yes! <laughs> So, so the like I said, the A plot of this involves Ryan and Donnie partying. I do want to quickly say when they go to this Long Beach party, uh, crazy, crazy kind of cultural moment to think back on. This is not my musical moment because I prefer the Spoon song by a lot. But uh, do you guys know the song? You guys heard the song when they get to the party? They're playing um, Black Eyed Peas. The uncensored one with the hard R word. Yeah, it's not even the uncensored one. It's just the original one. Even the if you look it up on any streaming service now, it's the new it's the new version. Because back in 2003, uh, Let's Get It Started by the Black Eyed Peas was actually called a different song title of a different thing that sounded kind of similar. Uh, Let's Get uh, Hard R Word. And uh, 
it's mm-hmm. crazy that we let them do that. But it's crazy that it was culturally acceptable. And not only was it culturally acceptable at the time, it was allowed to be played on a network television show aimed at teenagers. We've come so far. We have. I mean, you know, two steps forward, one step back. At least we are past that in our moment. Also to very much date this episode or maybe to not date it at all. I don't know. Maybe this is just a humble brag. I'm not sure. The Range Rover they drive looks exactly like the one I drive right now. Oh, dang. The the body style hasn't changed in the slightest in 15 years. Maybe you just have an old Range Rover. I mean, that's a possibility also. But just want to throw that out there. Ryan's trying to make friends, so he's hanging with Donnie. But he's also trying to uh, get, get with Marissa, who... Last we heard, she was a little on the fence about whether she wanted Luke or Ryan. Uh, so Ryan's trying to like make some moves here, which I respect. Um, it starts with him seeing her outside somewhere. Um, Where she lives. Yeah, I forget. It's always outside. Uh, Marissa lives outside. <laughs> That's going to make me laugh every time. <laughs> so stupid. Confirmed. Marissa, homeless, confirmed. Okay. Uh, so he sees her outside. She's looking for a house. And he says, uh, you know, I want to ask you out. And uh, they, they make dinner plans for, I believe it was macaroni night, I think, right? Mac and cheese. Oh, mac and cheese. Uh, Ryan can't make it to the date with Marissa because they, they get they get into a little bit of trouble at the Long Beach party. The Range Rover that uh, Chelsea also drives gets, gets a little torn up. Um, and so Ryan doesn't make the date. He stands up, Marissa. Which is crazy because in any other situation, he prioritizes her over everything. But in this particular situation, six kegs, crazy honeys. Uh, they're going to come before Marissa. And so she's, Dude, she feels stood up. Someone demoed the Range Rover. I, I have that written down as a quote. So they set up another date. Ryan and Marissa are having a date. Meanwhile, Donnie and Seth are at this party at Holly's house where things get crazy it was funny to hear seth talk about how lame the party was going to be like Seth, some sort of like connoisseur of like huge massive parties <laughs> well it was very presumptuous of him to just show up did anyone invite him mm, yeah like he's not even really invited these parties and he's bringing sketch people i mean party foul on two accounts yeah that's kind of a move i respect the move of just like well i don't know if i'm invited to this party but if i bring someone else then at least they're the weird one that's there and not me um yeah. i believe donnie's <laughs> Donnie's yeah. actual quote was, when Seth talks about how lame the party is, Donnie's quote is, with the right attitude and a couple of cocktails, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Can we also talk about, since we're talking about Holly, I, I, this has been a point of contention on this podcast, but I think we have finally confirmed that Holly, who hosts the parties, whose beach house everyone's going to, is in fact the Holly whose dad punched Tate Donovan and Sandy at Cotillion. Yeah, I, I had a problem earlier. I think I may have even taken it out of the episode where I was confusing Holly with Jess. Like, I got them kind of mixed up. But, yes, same Holly. It's her dad. Um, so they're going to party at her house, which is presumably owned by the man who punched Tate. Who is presumed by Ted. By Ted from Breaking Bad. Yeah, IFT. So uh, they're at this party. Things get a little out of control. Ryan ends up getting called because Seth finds out that our, that our old buddy Donnie brought a handgun to the party. Which is a weird thing to just call Ryan and be like, hey, I know you're far away and on a date, but but Donnie has a gun, so I guess you should come to this party now. Ryan ends up having to ditch the date with Marissa, which he was doing well at, by the way. I wrote that Ryan was a barbecutionist, uh, like we've seen that word before. And yeah. he, he had some charisma. I felt like he had some charisma on this Marissa date. Um, he, was being, he was being kind of funny. He's making some moves, uh, but then he just ditches her again to go to this party at Holly's house because Donnie has a gun, which I'm just, I was trying to put myself in that situation. Like it was a girl that I put this much into and I'm finally getting like one-on-one time on a date with her. And my friend calls me and says like, Hey, 
I'm at a party and someone has a gun, I'd be like, okay, you should leave. Yeah, leave you should party. call the police. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, or at least call someone's dad. Like, Jesus. They were at a pretty key moment in their young courtship because so we had something that I feel like is contractually you're contractually obligated to include this in every like teen soap opera or every romance. And it's the, the the throw someone in the pool montage. But there was something about this montage that just made me super uncomfortable. And it's that out of nowhere at the end, they're just staring at each other. It's the nose graze. It's like the it's the few moments before you actually kiss. Those oh no, when they're in the pool. Yeah, like no, he's, talking about, he's talking about before they're in the pool house. When that's when they that's when they almost kiss. When they're actually in the pool. They're just so they like they play and there's this montage, like there's they're splashing, and then all of a sudden they're both completely still, floating like otters, staring like at each other. Like the director yelled cut. <laughs> the director yelled cut, but they were both gonna float there for a minute to make sure and then they just left it in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I so, noticed that as well. That that just um, freaked me out. So back to the party, uh, Luke and Holly have also been hooking up. There's, there's some commotion. Some, Donnie's breaking some shit. And so Luke comes out to confront him. Donnie pulls his gun out, holds it sideways like you do. and uh, Corona style. Corona style. And really turns the tables on our, on our boy Luke, who admittedly, bad guy to have hooked up with Holly when you have a girlfriend. But also, I still love Luke. Good guy. I mean, him and Marissa were technically broken up at this point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? Great point. Good guy. Luke. It was a soft breakup. A breakup with a lowercase b. They like it wasn't a, a hard cut off. It wasn't like a hard R, like the cash. Black Eyed Peas song. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so they get into a they get into a fight, and I, I wrote that Donnie went zero to a thousand. Like it went from Luke going, "Yo, man, what's going on?" to Donnie pulling a gun out and putting it in his face, making him like beg for mercy. With the not very funny, are you Abercrombie or wait, no, you're Fitch. And then life is what you make it, then pulls a gun out and tries to shoot him. One of the best lines from that exchange is, you know, he, he has his gun out. You know, he's starting to yell. Ryan's behind him, Seth's behind him. He's like, don't you hate this guy? Don't you hate how he treats you like trash, Seth? And Seth kind of mutters to himself. He goes, yes, he's definitely flawed. <laughs> like referring to Luke. Yeah, yeah. Seth's pro Luke's yes, execution. Yes, he's definitely flawed. <laughs> Yeah, you know, he's trying to, like, calm down the situation, but... He's chaotic neutral. You know, Seth wants Luke... I think Seth secretly wants Luke to die at that moment, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, they get into, a, they get into like, a, a struggle. Ryan shows up and, like, tries to talk Donnie off the ledge. It's not working, so he just gets physical with him. And uh, the gun ends up going off still because it's a television show, so of course it does. And Luke gets shot in the arm. And that's kind of how that, that plot is left, is Luke staring up at them with blood pouring out of his arm. Hey, yeah. you know, that there is a technical term to that. It's called Mr. Chekhov's gun, in case you guys didn't know, in case you guys weren't yeah. fucking dorks like me. At, and as we'll see, I don't think Luke just got shot in the arm. I think he got shot in the personality because he's a completely <laughs> different person when he recovers that's from his Seth, wound. Seth we'll... mentions that, I think, in the next episode. Yeah. Um, he seems different. What I thought was funny, there's, so there, when they're at this party, there's a lot of people calling. Like Seth calls Ryan, Ryan calls Marissa. And they're always using landlines, which I thought was interesting because it's mm-hmm. 2003. I had a cell phone by then. There's there's also been cell phones in the show up to this point. I don't know why they're using landlines. Um, but that's kind of the A-plot. That's where we get left with the A-plot. To me, the most, uh, the more interesting part of this episode and the thing that's got a lot more content to dig through and uh, mm-hmm. it was the B-plot with uh, Tate and Sandy hanging out. They say they're having guy time. Uh, yep. Because because we think that we think the Tate and uh, I want to say Melinda. We think the Tate and Julie Cooper Melinda are going to be getting divorced. 
So Tate's going to Sandy, asking for his legal advice. Sandy's giving him advice. Tate's getting a good deal. He doesn't want. To, he still doesn't want to take it. Uh, but there's this really interesting moment where they have. First of all, they have a conversation about kind of the best times of their life, and they both say that the best time of their the best age of their life was the age with the, in which they met Kirsten. I have a note from that, and just to show you where my head was at at this point in the episode, I said, if Tate kissed kirsten and sandy kissed kirsten that means that sandy and tate have kissed they're eskimo brothers eskimo bros they are eskimo bros if they dated like they both dated kirsten yeah more than just kiss yeah can we talk about the fact that we see dustin again wait did we did i miss Dustin? yeah we saw dustin's in it i I missed we have we have it was not only was it Dustin, but we also, I, I can't remember because it's been a while since I've watched this, but it was important enough that I put, oh my gosh, we see Dustin and Tate in that outfit. So apparently it was a pretty sweet outfit that Tate was wearing. Uh, my The other big important part of this B-plot was the scenes of uh, the women uh, on their spa weekend retreat, which was uh, like Kirsten, Julie, and like a couple of their friends, Taryn. I know Taryn was there, a couple of their friends. Um Yes, Taryn pops up throughout the series, and she's always a delight every single time she's in an episode. I call their group of friends uh, the Karen Squad. I believe that Sandy refers to them as the Noopsies. That's right. Which which one was the one that had my favorite line possibly in television history, which was thanks for the relaxing weekend? Yeah, uh, Ryan, I'll let you do the honors then. The well, best no, line actually, the No, you entire... didn't say the line. No, I, that's not the line I had. I'm it's... sorry. I didn't mean to step over you. Oh, the... it. oh, no, it's okay. No, the line is, thanks for a relaxing weekend, ladies. I'm off to fire my cleaning lady. Oh, my God. Yes. I had written down that my favorite line was, Kirsten enti- said that she had an entire family of Guatemalans cleaning her house for less than minimum wage. That's, that's what I was getting into, was that they kind of go, and Kirsten <laughs> kind of attacks all the ladies. Uh and she mentions one of them had a $500 a day Coke habit in college, oh my which gosh. seems impossible, but you know, it's, it's the OC. I don't think I've ingested that, like that amount of drugs in my entire life. Like I don't know, $500 a, a day. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of them has a, a Guatemalan family cleaning her house uh, for below minimum wage. So they get fired. <laughs> Another job lost. Which, yeah, it doesn't help. She's not going to give them a raise. She's going to fire them instead. We're, we're left with Luke uh, being shot. We're left with uh, Julie filing for divorce from Jimmy. Uh, Sandy starts to feel sympathy for Jimmy. They have a great argument on the golf course about the deal that they're okay. getting. Sandy has an amazing quote in this, and it is, I think there's more to providing for a family than money. Yeah. Such a solid quote. A quote to live by, some solid Sandy Cohen wisdom, but I really think that that Tate needed to chill out quite a bit because he's legitimately getting free legal advice from Sandy this entire time. And not only is he disagreeing, but Sandy's actively working for him, getting him deals. That is true. I just, Tate, I love you, man, but you really have no chill at this part in the series. And I'm nobody's nobody's perfect. Okay. Poe buddy's nerfect. Um, so that's how kind of we left the episode. My only other big note that I had about that was that Seth called Holly's beach party lame when he was talking to Donnie about it. I didn't think that seemed like a lame party at all. Before the gun came out, it seemed like a very, very good party. It did. I um I did remember when I watched it getting stressed and then I was stressed again. With At what point in the party do you start throwing pretzels at people and creating just general havoc? Once you run through the six kegs and all the honeys. <laughs> That's right.
See what he was upset because there were no like stripper dancer honeys on the on the table. It was bummed. Yeah, there was that scene at the beginning of the episode where uh, Seth, where Ryan and Donnie are leaving, and Seth catches up to them on the boardwalk. It's, and Donnie points out who they're gonna go hang out with, and he just goes, "The blonde one's a dancer." Yeah. And and they're just straight like hoes over there. <laughs> yep. I have one question for you all remaining in this episode, and it's going to be the same question I have for every episode on this disc, which is, where's Anna? She was going well, on, she was she sailing she to was Tahiti. Sailing, yeah. I'm not going to ask that question for every episode then. Redacted. <laughs> she said she was sailing to, uh, <laughs> she's sailing to Tahiti before school starts, so we can assume she'll be back once we actually start school. That's how we leave episode five. Uh, it wasn't great. <laughs> I, I, I liked it because yeah. it's the OC, but it's, it's a weaker episode. It, I didn't like it. I thought it was a throwaway episode. Yeah. It was a if if this episode were a party, it would be a party in Long Beach with six kegs and a bunch of honeys. So one that you enjoy in the moment, but don't really want to tell people about, maybe not even want to relive ever. Exactly. That's episode five, The Outsider. Uh, what was your fashion moment, Chelsea? Later in the episode, Seth rocks a track jacket, which was super popular. Not among cool guys. Only dorks wore track jackets. Um, and then in one scene, he has a, a penguin, like polo or a penguin button down. You can see the logo on underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, he In one scene, he wears a white button down, like collared shirt with a graphic tee on top. I thought that was a weird look. Yeah, not a good look. Not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that if it has a collar, the, the accompanying, you know, over shirt needs to be knit, needs to be wool. It's not something like that. So there All we right, go. All right, episode six. We did it. Let's do this. Episode six, The Girlfriend. Uh, Dylan, give me some stats. This episode aired on September 9th, 2003 to 9.1 million viewers again. So we have plateaued and we are liking this plateau. This one was written by the man, the myth, legend Josh Schwartz, along with Deborah Fisher. And what an episode it was. Let's dive in. Uh, So there's... Like with most episodes, there's kind of an A, B, and C plot. Uh, the main thing that goes on is we get to meet Caleb Nickel for the first time. Yeah, we he do. He is Kirsten's uh, uh, father and also appears to be the Donald Trump of uh, Newport. Of the I, West. I think they, of the entire I think West. Is, oh, ho, 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 I stand corrected. How uncomfortable does it make you feel that every single old TV show references this guy? I mean, the first episode of Sex in the City, they talk about how big is the Donald Trump but of New York, but younger and hotter. And I just hear that and I cringe. And now they do it again in this show. Like, they're all of our shows and my favorite Christmas series all ruined over this. Forever tainted. I will Ugh. say that uh, when, in the group chat, when Dylan, you texted us and wrote Donald that uh, Caleb Nichols, the Donald Trump of the West, I thought that was your just like original thought. And I was like, oh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> But then when I actually heard Summer say it in the episode, I lost my mind. I was like, I can't fucking believe they said that on the OC. And now he's te- he's still technically our president. Yeah. That's wild. Rigged. <laughs> I, uh, oh. I, I think that Caleb might have the best entrance of any TV character, including, and I'm including Martin Sheen's introduction in the West Wing, but him just walking into the kitchen and saying, Shalom, Shalom Sandy. Sandy. I la- like I legitimately <laughs> laughed out loud both times when I saw it originally, when I saw it this time. 
So I'm I'm a big fan of Caleb. I think that he is he is a much needed foil uh, to Sandy and um, and his altruism. He you're right. He provides really great foil to Sandy's idealism. He obviously shares none of those ideals. Um, he's obviously a very wealthy man, a very corrupt man, and he's dating a 24 year old just like Hugh Hefner. Gabrielle, it's amazing. Gabrielle. So we meet Gabrielle immediately. For some reason, she's swimming in the pool with the boys, not hanging out with her boyfriend, you know, the elderly uh, rich guy. Um, Caleb kind of comes in like a wrecking ball. You can tell that his presence immediately annoys Sandy and puts Kirsten on edge. Uh, They have some kind of an exchange where Caleb is basically like rubbing it in Kirsten's face that she makes decisions without him and that it kind of pisses him off. And he basically tells her that he's going to demote her at work. Which up until now, the thing that defined Kirsten and that made her stand out from all the rest of her friends was that she was the career girl and she was the breadwinner in her family. Um, I think that Jimmy refers to her a couple times as uh, when talking to Sandy, he says, you're married to the richest girl in Newport. You quit your job. She wouldn't even notice. So clearly she is high up in her position. Her dad comes home. He's frustrated that she's gaining independence without him. He tells her he's going to demote her. So she's automatically crushed. Can we talk about how awkward um, Caleb and Ryan's first interaction was? Oh, it was he bad. He treated him like the help. Yeah, it was. It was awkward, and Seth tried to smooth it over. But man, it's still, still in 2020. It's a hard watch. I mean, he comes out. The first thing he mentions is, "Oh, this is the kid that moved into my daughter's house and burned down my model home." He refuses to shake his hand, which is smart because of COVID. But back then, just rude. <laughs> <laughs> He might actually be the Donald Trump of the West in that sense. That's right. <laughs> I believe when I was narrating, it said, I said, Caleb Nickel, Kirsten's dad, comes to visit the Coens, and Ryan's nervous since he moved into his daughter's house and burned down their model. Speaking of a model in awkwardness, Caleb's girlfriend is low-key 24, hot, and super into Ryan. She comes in strong. Yeah. I, I mean, this is uncomfortable for many reasons. Talk about like some daddy issues. Uh, yeah, we can talk. We can just get right to that because it's kind of like the, the the elephant in the room. This woman is horned up over a high school yeah. sophomore. So Gabby is in. Do you guys know the concept of face families? They're like people that look alike, but like I'm I'm convinced that Gabby is in the same face family as Jamie Presley. Margot Robbie and Samara Weaving. Oh my god! It's that weird kind of. It's oh, the same face yeah. family. Okay, I've never heard of this. Full oh, face she, family she's thing. poor man's. Uh huh. Poor man's Margot Robbie for sure. Yeah, so like Jamie Presley is like the matriarch of the face family, and then Margot Robbie was like her her her, her protege, and then Samara Weaving comes out of nowhere in Ready or Not, and in Bill and Ted Face the Music, and like you think it's the same person, but no, it's just the same face family. That's incredible. I've never heard of this concept of face family, but I'm very into it. Uh, apparently her mom, you know, encouraged her, even though she was uh, underage, to go off and live with a bunch of models. She gets addicted to drugs. Uh, she just gets in all kinds of trouble. And now she's kind of trying to settle down. But by settling down, that means becoming the girlfriend of a uh, very wealthy septuagenarian. Excellent use of septuagenarian. Yeah. Thank you. I've been I've been looking for an opportunity to use that word. And now, now it's here. Um, she she immediately starts asking Seth and Ryan about their dating life. She wants to know all about Marissa. She goes, oh, she's still dating a guy who eats paste, which I thought was kind of funny, kind of cute. But she, may, I mean, you could tell that that was a joke that she thought was really clever because she repeats it like three or four times throughout the episode. Paste eater. Uh, she, 
Anyways, she comes in hot. She sneaks into his uh, pool house. They share a very smoky, hot makeout session. Well, she was hang- she was just hanging out with them uh, at dinner. She was hanging out with them at dinner when um, Caleb and Sandy get into an argument with Kirsten. And so they all leave and just go to the pool house. And then Seth leaves them alone in the pool house. And that's when they kind of have their... That's what Ryan says they hooked up. But that, to me, that's not a hookup. But he calls it a hookup. Uh, but yeah, it was very... She was aggressive. And you can say that she was bored. I think she was horned up over a high school sophomore. I uh, I feel like this is the perfect opportunity to talk about something that uh, is, is very horny-inducing, sure. at least in my opinion. That is this episode's comic oh book minute. Oh, my God. So right before Gabby I decides to break off a piece... <gasps> Right before Gabby decides to break off a piece of Inchino Man, Seth and Ryan are reading Azriel, Agent of the Bat. So these issues that are on the bed kind of jump all over the place time-wise. Ryan's reading issue 95, which came out on October 9th, 2002. I couldn't make out what Seth was reading, but on the bed that you can see as Gabby is crawling on the bed, we see issue uh, 94, a second copy of issue 95, and maybe issue 86. So here's the deal. Azriel was a character that first showed up in Night end which is the final arc in the batman night saga which consists of nightfall night quest and night's end but here's the fun fact nightfall was actually the primary inspiration for christopher nolan's dark knight rises film so see there's always a connection and this has been your comic book minute oh boy we survived again (laughs) uh so meanwhile while gabrielle is trying to get her mac on with ryan Marissa and Luke share a few tender moments. Now he just had gotten shot. He's out of the hospital. He's trying to rekindle things with Marissa. And out emerges a much more polite, uh, cool-headed Luke. So we always say, cool, cool-head Luke. Cool-head cool Luke. Head Luke is my guy. <laughs> um, so him and Ryan actually have an exchange where he thanks him for calling Marissa, getting into the hospital. So that kind of fills in that uh, hole of continuity that we were wondering about. Ryan must have had a big part uh in getting luke fixed up after you know he was shot is that conversation where luke does finger guns and holds them sideways and says take it take easy it guy, easy guy. i have the same notes <laughs> and he holds them sideways after he was just shot by a guy holding a gun <laughs> sideways <laughs> this is meta. those are Chekhov's finger guns <laughs> Chekhov's finger guns hi we're an improv team I wrote down that, like, I was like, they seem to have gotten over that trauma very quickly, but maybe it just manifested itself in a weird way. This is this is also, I love weird Luke, because he, like, walks in with his hand behind his back, and he goes, I don't, I don't want to waste any more time. And then he pulls out the <laughs> smallest bear stuffed animal, like he's proud. Like, what is this guy? Like, he got that at Cece's Pizza. I won this. Dude. I love that you said I love weird Luke because that's exactly what this is. <laughs> he's, he's weird Luke. Yeah. He's pain meds Luke. <laughs> cool head Luke. <laughs> Dude, Luke is all jacked up on the fucking drugs that Marissa's going to try and kill herself with in like an episode from now. Oh my god, yeah. All right. Okay, so we'll, woo, bringing it back in. Uh, Luke suddenly is nice. Marissa's open to the idea of a relationship with him, but you know, still, she's clearly into Ryan. They they kind of are talking. They miss each other in certain moments. Basically, this episode is Marissa trying to get her shit together and figure out whether she wants to be with Luke or Ryan. And as she heads to the uh, pool house, 
to talk to Ryan to see, you know, hey, can we get this started? I'm questioning. I want some clarity from you. She walks in on him and Gabby, uh, maybe, maybe pre-coitus. Do you think they yeah. would? Do you think they would have fucked if Marissa didn't walk in? If they would have, then I'm fully Team Kayla because you think about this little shit who comes in and burns down his and then house, fucks his girlfriend, moves in with his family, fucks his girlfriend. <laughs> I just feel like the idea of them doing it at the pool house when they're surrounded by everyone at this big party. I don't know. That just seems like a lot. And the blinds are halfway open. Yeah, I don't know. The door wasn't even locked. And by the way, the thing that makes it worse is it was his birthday when all of this was happening. And also, he and I both don't like cilantro, so I can relate to Caleb in that way. So Ryan almost fucked his girlfriend on his at his birthday party. That is the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so two other, uh, you know, B and C storylines, I guess you could call it. Uh, Jimmy obviously has no job. He and Kirsten uh, grew up dating each other, so he gets this idea that he can ask Caleb for a job, and Caleb will employ him. Now, of course, Julie is mortified, and she tries to scourge him from doing it. But but we're a little thrown off because it seems as though she doesn't try to discourage him from doing it because she wants to avoid the embarrassment, but more she has up her sleeve that maybe she can get in on the Caleb Nickel action. So the episode kind of ends, uh, you know, towards the end, her and Caleb exchange a bit of a flirty dialogue, if you will. Yeah, it's part part one of the wooing of Caleb Nickel. Yeah, it was bizarre that uh, Caleb. <laughs> Well, I guess it's probably just used to people doing things like this, but like Jimmy asks him for a job and then 30 seconds later, Jimmy's soon to be ex-wife comes and talks to him. Like I would be like, it's a little suspicious, but I guess not. Can we talk about the cutest moment of this episode? Is it when Summer kisses Seth? Does it have to do with Seth and Summer? It has to do with mermaids and poetry yep. and Seth and Summer. Yep, yep, yep. I'm going to let Dylan retell this, that uh, thread of the storyline just because it's so precious. Okay, so this was uh, adorable in my opinion. I'm already on on Team Summer. I, it switches back and forth in these early episodes, but I knew from the moment I saw Summer wearing a powder blue terry cloth romper just like James Bond um, that I was going oh. to be Team Summer for this episode. So my favorite my favorite outfit he wears. I bought one just like it. Heck yeah. It's it's my it's so you can actually buy them if they're for boys. They're not called rompers, they're called men's play suits. They're called so, rompems. Uh, I think we should <laughs> romp rompems? Yeah, I have a That I sounds a, like a drug. I have a romp him. Dang. Yeah. I um so anyway, Seth and Summer go together to Caleb's birthday party. And by go together, I just mean I guess they stand uh together most of the time when they're there. And Seth is used, or so he thinks, uh, for Summer um, to be introduced to a whole bunch of older men Mm -hmm. who deal in stocks, bonds, and finances. He manages money, Cohen, and all that stuff. But then at the end, when Seth gets a little bit upset, he's like, you're just using me to meet these guys. He finally admits that uh, he knows, you know, I know the real you. And he talks about a poem that she wrote when she was in school. And he talks about how he saw that she was so scared her hands were shaking. And he starts to recite the poem. And then Summer just grabs him and gives him a kiss. And it's the most adorable thing ever. And also, I totally forgot that uh, Seth got a kiss from Summer before Ryan got a kiss from Marissa, which was possibly an absolute uh, mind blow. But, you know, not to, not to undercut the cuteness of that moment we have a complete bizarre 180 right afterwards when she goes, okay, well, I just kissed you, but 
I got to go talk to the guy, uh, another one of the rich guys before he leaves. She says, so, I'll introduce so yeah. myself. Like, that's somehow redeeming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, were, were these producers just not concerned at all about any kind of weird... I, I don't know. Maybe these things are just hitting different now than they did 15 years ago. But some, there's something about a 16-year-old girl in a tiny little dress sexually introducing herself to investment bankers. That was somehow they managed. Yeah. They somehow managed to make that the most uncomfortable part of an episode where an adult woman tries to seduce a 16 year old high school student. Straddles him. Um, Okay. Outfit of the episode. Uh, They actually use, you could tell whenever they're filming this episode, they took a lot of promo pictures because it's the dress that she's wearing in tons and tons of press for this show. But Marissa wears this amazing blue and white dotted drop waist halter dress. I've said this multiple times, but the way that Marissa was built is she was able to just get away with some of the most ridiculously proportioned outfits I've ever seen in my entire life that I could never wear in a hundred years. But she looks elegant in like just gazelle-like in them. Uh, Ryan, you want to talk about the music moment? Because I have one that I wrote down in my head, so I'm curious if you wrote down the same. I bet I we, I too. bet we did. But also, we need to mention the end of the episode where Luke and Marissa like hook up for the first time. Oh, I was whoa, blo- I was blocking yeah. that out. No, I, I have notes. A new, dude, Luke. I he, I wrote Luke was a good dude most of this episode. He's a good dude at the party. He's being very nice. Uh, and then his reward for being a good dude, he finally gets to hook up with Marissa. And he says, should lesson. I get a condom? Or I think he says, should I get a, and he leaves it ambiguous. We know he needs a condom. Uh, but again, good guy, Luke. <laughs> he was asking if you should get a PS5 or an Xbox. <laughs> should I just go, should I get a PS5? I asked myself that question this week. Too bad I could not. So <laughs> They do. We kind of breezed up. Yeah, we just breezed over that. I, I, I blocked it out again. It's one of those things that kind of happened. The biggest issue that I had with it was, you know, I mean, if she wants to make that call, she can make that call. But the fact that she then attached so much of her own self-worth to it, because when Ryan comes up at the end and she just looks at him and goes, you're too late. Yeah, like now she belongs to Luke. Like he's he's marked me. And that just I mean, maybe hopefully I don't get too preachy here, but that I don't like it when TV shows do that. And I don't like it that, you know, a whole bunch of us were watching this at a, at a very specific time in our life. And that was the message that was being put across. And so I, um, you know, I don't know. You're too late. No. That rubbed me I wrong. I really good feedback. And it, it was also kind of upsetting that she was thrown into an emotional tailspin by Ryan hooking up with someone. Mm. That she goes and does this very extreme thing with another guy. Like, that's clearly not, I mean... Marissa is clearly not a healthy character. We yeah. we establish that in literally every single episode from here until uh, the end of season but it is, three. Actually, when you put it that way, like I, I did think that she, I, I remember thinking like, oh, she definitely overreacted. But now when you put it that way and you say it in the way that's like, she reacted to a situation that had nothing to do with her and that's how she lost her virginity. Like that is kind of dark. Yeah. That's so yeah. dark. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No wonder we all blocked it out. My yeah. music moment of the episode, let's see if it matches with yours, Chelsea. It was, I think it was the beginning where, uh, where we see Gabby for the first time and it's, uh, yes, you're yes! so damn yes! hot. Yes! Okay. Go from their very first record, self-titled fucking great record. My favorite. Okay. Go record. That is such a good record. Such a good record. This is going to be, yeah, this is going to be really controversial take. So I'm prepared to get roasted for this, especially them being hometown boys. But I wrote down you're so damn hot by okay. Go. It was, like a very distinctive sound mm-hmm. distinctive to them but very distinctive to the era yeah. i think that if someone told me that 
all American Rejects sang that song or even like the Click Five sang that song, I'd be like, oh yeah. It's crazy that we got into OK Go at this time and like that first record's really good. And then they went on to become this kind of different band where they changed their sound up quite a bit and they then they blew up into this like gimmicky mm-hmm. music video band. Yeah. The the treadmills. What year did the treadmill video? I think that was like oh like eight or something. Oh seven oh eight. I think wasn't this also the album that had Get Over It? Oh yeah. On get, it. Get 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 oh, over I it. I watched I watched that music video so much, and I remember hearing the lyric "Body Like a Battle." Dude, I said the same confused. thing. I have that lyric in my head forever <laughs> as well. That's crazy that you said that. Yeah. I will never forget "Body yeah. Like a Battle Axe." Yeah, that's wild. Okay. All right, that was episode six. Hang on, I'm looking this up. I have to know where it's going to drive me crazy. Otherwise, the Treadmills music video was 2005. Wow. That gets us into episode number seven, iconic episode of The O.C. One of the most iconic episodes of The O.C. It's called The Escape. Dylan, tell me about it. The Escape aired on September 16th, 2003 to 8.8 million viewers. So viewership was down. But one of the reasons this episode is so iconic is probably because it had one writer, and that writer was Josh Schwartz. Let's dig into it. Sandy Cohen is on screen for only six minutes of this episode. Yeah, he's taking a backseat to the drama. But don't worry, when we get to the next episode, his screen time comes way, way up. Um, so this is, uh, according to uh, OC Fandom, the wiki, Marissa doesn't take her parents' divorce well. I do believe that that is uh, an understatement. <laughs> Marissa doesn't take her parents' divorce well. And when she finds Luke with Holly during an end-of-summer trip to Tijuana, she's found passed out in an alley due to a drug and alcohol overdose. Kirsten, upset that Sandy is considering the job, (laughs) doesn't even say what it is, finds herself in a compromising position with Jimmy in his new apartment. Okay, before we dive into this episode, I tease it before. Can I quickly tell you what the logline on HBO Max was for episode six, The Girlfriend? The entire description just said, this was the entire description. After a hot girl seduces Ryan, Marissa has sex with Luke. (laughs) Spoilers. Yeah. So that's that's it. Uh, in this episode, we know uh, the the a plot that dominates the episode is Marissa. Uh, it's all about Marissa. It is her choosing uh, to be with Luke, or maybe just being with Luke because she feels like she kind of lost the chance with Ryan. Uh, so they're awkward now. Whenever they see each other, she shows up to the crab shack at one point, and they have a very uh, weird conversation. I'm gonna call it the crab shack now until we until he quits working there, which I think is like literally the next episode. Yeah. Marissa and Ryan are, are in a weird spot. Um, they all decide that they're going to go to Tijuana because school starts next week. And uh, Marissa decides she doesn't want to go with, with the squad, with the group, uh, because she thinks that there's something going on with her dad. She's right. Also, she doesn't want to ride with Holly because her dad just, or Holly's dad just beat up her dad, which is very understandable. understandable. Uh, so Marissa decides she's not going to go on this big Tijuana trip. Then Summer and her and and Tate talk marissa into going to tijuana because tate needs to move out privately without marissa knowing that he's moving out because they're getting divorced mm-hmm. so they end up uh there's there's a lot that happens here there's a scene in particular this next scene i want to break down deeply because there's it's something that i think deserves to have a big dive into it and it is the scene where they're on the road they it's marissa it's ryan it's seth and it's summer they're driving to tijuana mexico from orange county there's just so much that happens in, in like a three minute span that I feel like I want to kind of get into it a little bit. First of all, Seth mentions that the ETA to dr- the ETA for the road trip is three and a half hours. 
I looked into it. It's one hour and 46 minutes. Wow. Um, Not the musical moment of the episode, because I feel like that's obvious, but big moment for me as a giant fan of Death Cab for Cutie. (laughs) To hear Death Cab being played in the car, not only is it being played, because if you know Death Cab, you pick up on it. You go, holy shit, they're listening to Death Cab. But then it actually is brought up in the dialogue Mm -hmm. and in a conversation where uh, Summer also insults I think insults Seth for being Jewish. Basically, it's just like, you're Jewish? Ew. I wrote that down in my notes. She goes, you're Jewish? Right. Or something like that. Yeah, that's... To have the whole Jewish conversation wrapped around, like, death... It was just a big moment for me. Um, my favorite line <laughs> of this episode is Summer... And it's... I, I, she's not wrong, by the way. I love Summer. She's not wrong for saying this. It just hurts to hear it. She says that Death Cap is just one guitar and a whole lot of complaining. Yes. That's the genre of music that got me through high school, though. That was such a burn, though. Like, that's such a, like, shallow, cool girl burn that, like, they kind of say flippantly, but would, uh, the receiver of that insult would just carry with them forever. Oh, no. It's, I'm going to, I'm going, I've, I think about it every day, and I still, it's been 15 years, or it's 18 years, whatever, yeah. Mar- so she, she gives her diss to Death Cab, and then they get into a weird, like, argument that turns into like kind of a physical slap fight of sorts where they and they end up swerving off the road which i thought was just insane to watch as an adult through 2020 adult eyes i'm just going are you, are you and are breaking you the car kidding me what kind of what kind of psychopath does that what kind of psychopath tries to grab the wheel and they start swerving around and then the car's broken they end up at the paradise hotel where summer continues to complain about uh paying extra for the pubes we find out that they hitchhiked there on a chicken truck. Summer mentions Tom Cruise in Days of Thunder, which really came out of left field. Of all the random things that have happened so far in the scene, that's probably the most random. And then she says something about how she's going to get a rash in this place. And Seth makes a joke about her making money tonight. He he went from from you know zero to a hundred. You know, going from I named my boat after you to oh, are you going to make some money like really fast? And it made me almost not like Seth very much. Also, because, dude, you got to pick Comic-Con. <laughs> like, come that's on. That's not where I thought you were going to go with this, but that's very on brand for you. <laughs> yeah. By, by the way, Comic-Con 2003 was attended by over 70,000 participants and was from July 17th to July 20th. So now we've somehow traveled back in time uh, since episode two, which was the week before Summer's birthday of August 13th. So timeline notwithstanding, I mean... Mexico is always there. Comic-Con changes every year. Okay, so tell me, was that your nerd moment of the episode? Because I'm going to assign it that. That was my nerd moment. I have no comic book oh, moments perfect. this episode. God, thank you. We've, okay, perfect. <laughs> I just thought that was, just that 90-second scene was so heavy with just, like, so much yeah. stuff. Like, the Jew jokes and the death cab and then this weird dynamic with Seth and Summer. I was like, God, there's a lot happening in this episode, specifically yeah. in that scene. Um, Chelsea, what did you want to say about Summer? Oh, I want to talk, you know, it's a very summer-heavy episode. Uh, Before they even start this road trip, her and Marissa are talking about when Marissa lost her virginity to Luke. And Summer is very encouraging. She gives a lot of kind of sage wisdom about her sexual experiences. She even tells Marissa that she has to get back on and ride it again and does a little gesture. And we find out later in this season that Summer herself has never done it before at this point. And I don't know, to me, it just, it's, it hits a little different now that I'm 30, 31, almost 32 and, you know, 
15 years out and we understand more about just, you know, sexual agency. How did that make you guys feel? That's kind of how you talk about That's kind of how I talked about sex before I had sex. It's just like you act like you know everything, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like Summer is talking to Marissa about it the same way that I think legitimately every red-blooded American male talked about it. It's like, yeah, man, it's like, no, this is exactly what you got to do. And it's like, meanwhile, I mean, especially with me, it's like, you know, I'm the one that would prefer to go to Comic-Con. But I feel like... You know, it's it's all it's all a ploy. It's all that all that she is doing is what we do, which is if you ever watch Planet Earth and you see those birds dancing around doing all that weird bird crap. I mean, that's 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 exactly what we do, and so that's exactly what Summer is doing. The American pineness of it all is like sex is like the thing that everyone is trying to get, and it's like really yeah. not that really not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. As, as you'll come to find out. I don't out. know. I. I feel like maybe maybe I'm like being 32 and overly sensitive, but I'm kind of like that's like fucked up if you're encouraging your friends to go have sex when you're not having sex yourself. Yeah, I, don't know. I see what you're saying. I don't know, but no, this is this is a good sign for me. I'm trying to kind of you know ease into this next phase of life, trying to be a little bit more maternal. So it's probably good that I'm like considering these things now that I that I wouldn't have maybe five years ago. Are you our know. Are you our podcast mom? Yeah, you're gonna be. Are you I hope so. I mean, I guess I'll have to give up my $500 a day Coke habit, but. Are you going to fire that well, Guatemalan switch, family? Switch to Coke Zero. It's a lot easier. <laughs> Someone definitely watched that episode and was like, she drinks $500 worth of Coca-Cola a day. How does she not have, <laughs> how does she not have a bad teeth? Acid reflux. Much? Yeah. That's, yeah, really. So Tate has to tell Marissa that he and uh, Julie are getting divorced, which we could uh, just quickly, very quickly. Is that the right move? Would you have told her before she left or would you have waited for her to come back to an empty house? I think after her before she leaves. Really? Yeah. Well, I have a specific reason for it because he says, I don't want to ruin your whole trip. So he tells her this news at the very beginning of her trip. Yeah, it does feel like it feels like there's something there's something changes within him where he's like, I need to just tell her now because he's being overrun with guilt. I think when I whenever whenever when the, when my time comes to divorce Julie Cooper, I am going to tell my daughter at the end of her trip on her way back. So before she has the empty house, um, but uh, but but after she's enjoyed her trip because you know as you can see he's worried about her mental state and so i have an idea i'll just tell her this before she goes to tijuana and 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 parties uh i think i think i think telling her before is the move chelsea do you have an opinion you're very maternal (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's just no good answer in this uh as a very maternal person i'm questioning how any of these kids are allowed to go on this trip in general um i feel like my parents barely let me go to mexico in college unaccompanied um, there, there's a lot of just questionable, they talk about how there's a freshman hazing event, which is why Luke has to go down early without Marissa. Oh, they mentioned donkey shows, right? They mentioned donkey shows, I think. Yeah, I think they do too. I, unless I'm getting confused with 40 year old virgin, I'm pretty sure they talk about a donkey show and I'm, I'm concerned for multiple reasons. I just feel like the tone, like the lighting of that scene of Tate sitting alone in the dark apartment and her sitting outside crying. And then the ca- and then there's the scene where the camera like spins up from the ground and you see the four of them laying in bed, which is a really cool shot. It it was 
Josh Schwartz has really taken some taken some chances with the cinematography in this episode because you have that shot, you have the the shot of them, like you said, laying down, and then you have the entire overdose scene, you know, which was directed by David Lynch, and he's just really doing some crazy stuff, and it it really it it's. I feel like he does a very good job of portraying on camera better than a lot of, you know, primetime TV did at the time of portraying on camera exactly what was going on in the scene. So they uh, they get to Tijuana and uh, we find out that uh, Summer's buying prescription pills for her stepmom. Uh, was there, which I would soon, based on everything else we've talked about tonight, those would become Chekhov's pain pills. Chekhov's opioids. <laughs> Check off the opioids. Jeez. They get to Tijuana. They get these opioids. Um, one thing I realized here was that like Luke doesn't realize. I mean, I know that he was hooking up with Holly, but Marissa never thought to like call him and be like, "Hey, I'm coming." By the way, I'm. Uh, we should meet. She just knows where he is, like where to find him. Like if he knew she was coming, he probably wouldn't have been hooking up with Holly. I thought that was just like a, a weird miscommunication thing. So there, uh, it's immediately they get to the hotel. There's a conversation, but then all of a sudden it's immediately nighttime. I have questions about them waking up at uh, the the hotel. Oh, we we they woke up at the motel after the car crash. They drive the rest of the way to Tijuana, which as we've decided is less than probably less than an hour. They mm-hmm. get some pills. They stop by the hotel. Then suddenly it's nighttime. I don't know where the rest of their time went, uh, but it's nighttime. Uh, I have, I've written Tijuana is for the boys and also Holly uh, when it comes to Luke. She is so aggressive. She's trying to get Luke to hook up with her. Mm-hmm. And at one point she looks at him and she goes, oh, come on. I love this song. And it's legitimately two fax machines fucking. Like there's no <laughs> distinguishable song. It sounded very like 4 a.m. Coachella, what you'd hear just in the distance. That's what it sounded like. I was going to say, it made me miss uh, those DJ Ryan Drake uh, parties at the speakeasy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Hell yeah. Plug. Circle. Yeah, plug for a thing that's going to happen hopefully in six months. <laughs> yeah. So this is another scene that I feel like quickly, within just a ton happens in like a 30-second span here. We get, I wrote, Luke is a bad guy, question mark, because <gasps> suddenly we get dance floor Luke. He and Holly are dancing like they're like Luke has the look of a guy who is on Molly. Like he looks like he's on ecstasy for sure. I don't know if he is. He looks like it. Yeah. Beads of sweat on his upper lip. Yeah, he's got like that just, sweaty Molly lip. Just the his eyes are kind of rolled back into his head. He's just not really paying attention to anything. Uh, he's like kind of he's like making out with Holly. They're dancing. They're grinding. Ryan and Marissa just somehow show up. That's kind of the thing. Of they're they're in a different country. They somehow know where to find each other. So they show up. And at first, before they notice Luke and Holly, Ryan and Marissa have a little scene where it looks like they're maybe about to do something. They're kind of like feeling each other. They're, they're about to like kind of start dancing on each other. But then Marissa. Yeah, knows. they're definitely touching each other. Like she has his arm. Yeah. Marissa sees Luke. Luke sees Marissa. Marissa sees Holly. Holly sees Marissa. Ryan sees Luke. It's a whole thing. So what we see is uh, Marissa starts yelling at Holly. Uh, Summer. I always can't even say Rachel Bilson. Summer starts yelling at Holly. And says something along the lines of, her parents just got divorced, you slut. Or she calls her, you stupid slut. Summer fights Holly. They start getting into a fist fight. That fight gets broken up. All of a sudden, Ryan and Luke now are face to face. And Ryan tells Luke, you don't deserve her. And then they get into a fight. So now they're fighting. So it's just a, it's just chaos. A lot happens in about a 20-second span there. Uh, Next thing you know, a huge fight breaks out. Ryan sneaks out. Uh, and we see that Marissa is alone 
thinking that she has mm-hmm. no one now that her parents are getting divorced and Lucas cheated on her with one of her good friends. So she kind of does have no one at this point. So, uh, yeah. So there are a couple things about this scene that I wanted to bring up. Uh, the first thing is this is the introduction uh, to Summer's rage blackouts. We hear Seth say she has rage blackouts, which become very prominent in Summer's personality. Um, we also have this weird part where Holly is like, everyone knows that Luke's cheating on you. Luke, Luke, does this with everyone luke's been smooching with everyone snuffy al leo little mo with the gimpy leg <laughs> that's the part i left out in my scene breakdown i forgot i have that note i have the note where she says that that's a big that's a yeah. major part of that scene and then there's something and guys this is very difficult for me to come to grips with but I, we talked about this a little bit via text but I, I i did a little tally of all the things that marissa's been going through that would cause her overdose and it's 75% Tate Donovan related. So you have Ooh. you have Tate Donovan induced stress. You have Tate Donovan being mean. Um, you have being mean whenever you know he, she she uh, she he was like get out of here. We, I, I can't be alone. take care of both of us. Yes, and then uh, the divorce news, and then Luke cheating. So Luke is only responsible for 25% of that overdose. And so Tate, I love you, man. Um, but that's 75%. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned the overdose. So from there, Marissa disappears. Uh, she's she she takes the pain pills. She's washing them down with tequila. I wrote more Fincher here because it definitely looks like her sitting at the bar alone, even though there's a million people outside. Mm-hmm. She's alone at this bar except for like one dude at a random table. Um, she's down in tequila with pain pills. She stumbles out into the large large group of people, which also gives me COVID anxiety. Um, no one's helping her. She's very sweaty, but I felt like she did a good job portraying this. I was like, it, this is like Misha Barton's maybe best scene, maybe because it's so relatable. I don't know. Um, she stumbles around, finds her way into a completely empty alley surrounded by nothing, even though there's a million people outside. Uh, Ryan, Seth, and Summer somehow find her alone in this alley. So it's just the four of them. Again, logistically, none of this makes sense. Uh, but she's down. Ryan runs up to her. He starts trying to make sure she's okay. No one knows what's going on. Summer and Seth, who we'll get to in a second, they share a little moment. She turns around. He's hugging her. Ryan picks her up. It's it's Ryan Carey's number two. and Same music. All, so I was going to say, it's also uh, the musical moment of the episode. Once again, for the second time in just seven episodes, we get Mazzy Star, Into Dust. Same song. Um, and it's also a song that they revisit in season four, the Christmas episode, with the uh, when they cover. It's a to cover of that song that they play. So Ryan's carrying Marissa. That's how that storyline closes. What were your thoughts? I just wanted to tell you that this episode has a very clear moral. Teen drinking is bad and Comic-Con is good. Is it? Is it teen Amen. drinking is bad? The opening of Chingy's? Uh... The, yeah, but I got a fake ID, yeah, though. what's that song? Yeah, but I got a Isn't fake ID, though. Rubber Band Man? No. Oh, tipsy, tipsy. Thank you. I was going to drive me crazy. Teen drinking is very bad. Yo, I got a fake ID, though. So that's just a, a, a real big cliffhanger, and I want to talk about that in a second. But also, there's a little bit more going on in this episode, specifically with Summer and Seth, who, uh, they, like I mentioned, they get into this big argument in the car. But they, there's my favorite scene in this entire episode was them at the diner. Oh, I wrote that. I wrote notes about that. That's such a sweet scene. They're both reading newspapers. They swap newspapers. Seth knows when to slide her the toast. Um, he's he's putting some charm on. He's also gaining he's gaining confidence more and more by the episode. He's starting to win confidence her over. He's starting going. to wear her down. That speech he gives her kind of gave me the cold chills too. He mm-hmm. he was basically like, "We have chemistry. You can't deny it. You kissed me." And she's kind of like, mm-mm, mm-mm, "Nope, not gonna happen." 
in the scene before this, she actually is wearing the <laughs> outfit of the episode. Summer wears do rag. I feel like that's a big moment. I mean, she's wearing a halter top, white capris, hoop earrings. <laughs> that's the scene where she's outside and, and Sandy says something along the lines of like, she's hot stuff, son. God. That's such a dad thing. Super I, Sandy uh, move. Oh, I'm not a regular dad. I'm a cool dad. Um, I really like her baby G silicone watch too. That was a nice little uh, touch that shouts out the period. The hoop earrings, the do-rag. We stand a queen. That's right. Uh, the other kind of side-side plot of this is uh, Sandy getting a job offer or getting a job interview, I guess. Um He's getting interviewed. We don't really know. I guess we find out later why it's because he took on Jimmy Cooper as a client. Some people thought that was a big deal. So he gets uh, an interview to be a private practice lawyer at some big fancy firm. Um, and we're introduced to Bonnie Somerville. I have thoughts on Bonnie Somerville because um, you might, you, I, don't, I would love to know your take on this, Chelsea. Uh, Bonnie Somerville, she looks really familiar, but I guess I only know her from the OC because she hasn't really done anything else. So we meet Rachel. Um, there is some, some. it seems like maybe flirtation. We don't, you can't really tell if it's flirtation or they're just like witty. Pipe and hot chemistry. That's what I wrote down. That's a it's, great way to put it. It's a good witty banter, but right. it's not, it hasn't crossed over to anything inappropriate. Great way to put it. Um, but the most interesting thing about Bonnie Somerville that I could find was that she was on the cover of Stuff Magazine back in 2004. <laughs> Shout out to Stuff what? Magazine. Haven't heard of it since probably 2004. <laughs> she was on the cover of Stuff Magazine. It was their Girls of the OC issue. What is she in? Like five episodes total? She's in seven episodes. Um, I guess maybe at the time they thought she was going to play a bigger role. But the fact that she was on the cover of the girls of the OC issue. And then underneath it, it says the hottest women from TV's hottest show, Misha Barton, Rachel Bilson, Samir Armstrong, and Bonnie Somerville, the baddest new girl on the beach. Wow. I mean, that must have really captured a moment in time then. I know this issue is also available on eBay for $15 and I am strongly considering it. <laughs> so that's kind of the plot is uh, we, we get introduced to her. And it, by the end of the episode, he has accepted the job and he there's a little this moment in particular stood out because there's a toast between him and kirsten they're drinking wine uh, as we know kirsten later becomes an alcoholic so not probably not the best mm -hmm. idea for her but he gives a toast and says to a new season and i wrote down that this definitely feels like a season finale episode like this the entire mm -hmm. seven episodes that we've seen felt like it could have been stretched out over an entire tv season which it basically is a tv season in 2020 Mm -hmm. Well, it was the summer season because uh, right after this, they start talking about school. Yeah, yeah, but it was just such a cliffhanger. I remember, I remember, I remember this episode airing, and then, and then they went on like a uh, like a month long break before they came back for the holidays to get the holiday season. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember that month of agonizing, wondering like what happened to Marissa. Like, I specifically remember that. So that's where we are. Sandy has a new job. Marissa may or may not be something. You know, that explains the stuff cover a little bit more because maybe at that time we didn't know Marissa was going to be a main character. Maybe we thought that Bonnie could slip into her place. You know, Bonnie Somerville's coming for Misha's spot is what we were left to think <laughs> here. Um, so that gets us in, that gets us through episode seven. Iconic episode, obviously. Um, but there's still one more on this disc. It's episode eight. It's called The Rescue. Go ahead, Dylan. 
Do your thing. The Rescue. Oh, my gosh. The Rescue. Let's talk about this episode. The Rescue aired, uh, as Ryan said, over a month later on October 29th, 2003, to 9.27 million viewers. The numbers were up because people were craving the knowledge of what happened to Marissa Cooper. This one was written by Melissa Rosenberg and Alan Heinberg. And I know that the website does a really good job of writing uh, an intro or a summary, but because I'm a narcissist, I wrote one myself again. Please. <clears throat> Uh-oh, everyone. <laughs> Looks like Marissa... <laughs> Looks like Marissa Cooper was medevaced out of Mexico for something much worse than Montezuma's revenge. After downing one too many pills in TJ, Marissa returns to the safety and security of the American healthcare system, where her mother, Tiger Lady Julie Cooper, is intent on getting her the help she needs in a San Diego mental institution. Meanwhile, Sandy is starting a new job as a sellout corporate shill, 37-year-old Kirsten is displaying the psychological defense mechanism of projection. Ryan is taking an Are You Smarter Than a Rich Kid test to get into the Jinx High School of Southern California. And Seth is still, unbelievably, a social pariah. When the gang decides to bust Marissa out of the hospital before she could be shipped off, Tate Donovan sells them out for 30 pieces of silver and calls Julie Cooper. Ultimately, everything turns out all right. Or does it? Let's dive in. Wow. Wow. That was flawless. Oh, we are just we are just basking in your sunshine on this podcast, Dylan. We are just <laughs> my, the co-host. My nonsense. We are just the co-host. This is your show. I um I appreciate that. And because of your encouragement, I'm going to continue doing it and doing it bigger. Um I would like to encourage this you to episode... do more of that and less of the nerd stuff. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh, it's, I, you know, you say that, but I'm already looking at my notes and it says comic book minute. So it's coming, boy, baby. Boy. Um, so right out of the gate here, uh, we have the introduction of something very important um, in my mind. The scene opens up with a uh, very somber uh, Seth and Ryan and Sandy and Kirsten all sitting around the kitchen uh, island, not the kitchen table. And we are introduced for the very first time to the bagel slicer. Did That's you guys right. have a bagel slicer? Of course we had a bagel slicer. So right after this episode aired, my dad actually bought a bagel slicer exactly like that, and we became a bagel family. So it was very important uh, specifically for for my family. Um, it's a big moment. It's a big moment for any family to really to switch to Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. L'chaim. So in this episode, we have... We have a lot of stuff. We I almost would argue that we have two A plots um, okay. and one B plot that is still pretty active. Uh, the one A plot, of course, is that we have Marissa, who's at the hospital. Um, we arrive at the hospital, and we see that Jimmy Cooper is there uh, watching over Marissa like the good father that he is, probably feeling a little bit of guilt um, over what happened, feeling like it's his fault. And um, the Coens show up. And so I, I wanna, they, I wanna, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I won't do this. A lot. I don't have very many notes about this episode at all. So um, I just mm-hmm. wanted to point out before we move past it, this scene, um, when the Coens show up, Ryan, I don't know if you guys notice this, Ryan walks up to Marissa while she's unconscious. While they're have, they're, everyone else is having a conversation, Ryan walks up and sits so close to her and just stares Ooh. at her face at an awkwardly close distance. <laughs> it was so weird. I just watched this episode like an hour ago and I was like, that's so bizarre. Oh, that's like that's like pool, uh, playful time, staring, creepy. Um, 
But so so yeah, we have uh, we have this this hospital interaction. We begin to see the the fissure growing between um, Ryan Atwood and Julie Cooper because as they're leaving, you know, Julie comes in. Julie's upset that all of the Coens are there for some reason. I I know why she's upset that Ryan's there, but she's upset that they're all there. And so as they're leaving, um, she calls Ryan over, and uh, you know, you would think that she would be thanking Ryan for calling the ambulance and getting her to safety but no um she's pretty much putting all of it on ryan saying that all this has happened uh since since you've shown up it's all your fault uh you know this is something else you can add to your resume you've burned down a house you've stolen a car and now you've almost killed my daughter so you're not allowed to see her anymore um how did you all feel about that like up to this point luke was kind of the villain he has been villainized Mm -hmm. he's been kind of the, the the foil to ryan as our as our lead so I was glad to see someone step up to the plate and really take over the villain role. Absolutely. You know what I was thinking during this whole scene? I was thinking that it is our <laughs> outfit of the episode. There we go. That that juicy suit, man. Yes. I mean, Julie has. I'm guessing Julie has a pastel juicy suit in about every color. This is one of many, uh, but one that is, was quite memorable. That will be repeated throughout. Big the fan of this juicy suit. My mind immediately went to, wait, is she going to pick Marissa's hospital gown? Because I know that you chose the prison jumpsuit. And I'm like, are we going to have another off the cuff? But um, so we leave the hospital and we enter one of my favorite sequences in the OC, which are the parallels between Ryan uh, entering Newport Harbor High School, which is our first time seeing this ridiculously opulent high school as well as Sandy being introduced to his new firm where he's accepted the job. Um, we have the dialogue mirrors. Um, we have you know what's happening to each of them being They're mirrored. both getting pictures I, made. They, they're both getting pictures made. I really think that uh, that's a really good, um, you know, on, on the part of Rosenberg and Heinberg, I feel like that's a, a, that's a really fun little writing technique where you have both of these guys who come from, you know, very, very different backgrounds uh, going through the same experience of kind of, you know, making it up into the big leagues. But, uh, I mean, what do you guys think about your introduction to Newport? And, and, and what do you think about, I mean, Ryan's relationship with, uh, with Dr. Kim that we're beginning to see in this episode? How do you feel about all this? Um, I wrote down that Dr. Kim is definitely an underrated character. Uh, she makes several reappearances throughout the series. She's always tough, but very fair. And she's always incredibly earnest when giving kids advice. Like whenever she's discouraging Ryan from coming to the school, it earnestly does feel like she's saying, I don't want you to like flunk out or be in over your head. I think maybe this other school might work out better for you. It did not seem like she was saying that to him because she was snotty. It Mm -hmm. seemed like it was out of genuine concern. And that pops up in her character throughout the series. I'm a big fan of Dr. Kim, medicine woman. (laughs) I just popped in my head. Um, Uh, I think that she is a very good, I think it's cool that, it, that uh, and maybe this kind of goes back to our diversity conversation because we haven't, it just has not a lot in this episode, in this series, but to have like, uh, like an Asian woman is like the head of the, of the, of the most prestigious private school in California. Uh, I, I was like, that's really cool. Cause she's, she's tough, man. She's like no bullshit. I, I'm, a, I'm in on Dr. Kim. So um, we also have a very kind of sad, uh, you know, moment between Seth and Summer after they shared that loving embrace. Or I guess it was a horrifying embrace when they found Marissa uh, and they hugged in Tijuana. 
we're now in a situation where, as Seth puts it, we're back in school, so old rules apply. Where Summer comes to talk to him, and the cheerleaders walk by, and they're like, ew, why are you talking to that social pariah? And she just leaves. I, I told you earlier that this is kind of an up-and-down season for me with summer and i feel like that's Mm -hmm. this was right on par with a i'm gonna go introduce myself to this banker it's like she seems like she's doing a 180 she's she knows that they have chemistry because you know seth had that wonderful speech that chelsea pointed out but yet she cares more about what the cheerleaders think of her i kind of feel feel i kind of feel like um i i think it's a little i think it's different than that it's not just like she's one thing and she does a 180 now she's a different thing i just feel like She's still summer. She's still who she's always been. But there have been moments where she lets her guard down. And there have been moments where she's able to like be real with Seth. And there are moments where she can admit to herself that she likes him. But she keeps kind of defaulting back to that original summer. But more and more as the season goes on, especially like by the middle of the season, we start to see that she has she has finally made a 180. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a moment of cowardice is the thing. Like she's struggling with herself with what she wants to do. And then she references several times throughout the season. Oh, I don't know about my reputation. So clearly she's having that struggle here. So next up, we uh, go back to the hospital where Jimmy, excuse me, who is Jimmy? Where Tate Donovan and Julie (laughs) Cooper are having a tough conversation. Um, The conversation begins with my biggest TV pet peeve. And if once I say this, if you haven't noticed it, you're going to notice it in everything now. And that's empty uh, coffee mugs and empty cups. Whenever someone hands someone a cup in a show, there's rarely liquid in it. And you can tell because of the no weight and it drives me insane. That's one of the first things uh, you learn. That's one of the first things you learn in improv is like how to hold things like cups and phones because everyone holds them incorrectly. And like, if you're mm -hmm. doing an improv scene, you're not even holding a real cup. You need to hold your fake cup as if it has liquid in it. Yeah, I almost legitimately just pulled out this cup and demonstrated it for you all, and then I remembered that this is a podcast, and that doesn't do anyone any <laughs> My good. question is, was his pinky out, or was it tucked? It was tucked. Um, I know Julie's was tucked, because she's from Riverside. That's right. Uh, but <laughs> So she drops she drops another bomb on, on Tate Donovan. This is two bombs in the same disc, and this bomb is that she wants to get sole custody of Marissa. I don't know why. Why anyone would want sole custody of Marissa is beyond me. Oh, yeah. That is a lot of responsibility. Yeah. I. Uh, the other thing, too, is 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 we, we cannot understate the fact that in true teen drama fashion, Marissa heard everything and was crying while she was listening she's, to it. Because she's lo- awake. Yeah. she's. I'm awake now, Mom, from my mac and cheese. And she grabbed her flip phone and she is now using Marissa's it. Just not, um, Marissa's just not used to being in a bed because she lives outside. So this is like new experience for her. She's, she's, she's like those. She's like it's like in those movies where where someone who's never slept in a bed comes in and they walk in and they're sleeping on the floor because it's more comfortable. That's what she really wanted. Yeah, to do. like when, to Mar- yeah, when Marissa was in Tijuana, she didn't overdose. She was just going to sleep. That's what she knows. Yeah, I, I got to get some shut eye. Ryan, put me down. Ron, that we also talked about this over text, but there's there's two very distinctive ways that Marissa says Ryan. It's either one syllable whenever she's happy or wondering something or calm. She's it's more of a Ryan. She, you know, she's trying to cover up her British accent, mm-hmm. and then whenever she's upset, it's more about Ryan. Wait, is Misha Barton British? She's definitely British. Wait, I didn't know whether you were joking or no, not. No, I'm not joking. This is a big moment. M- Misha oh. Barton is British. Yeah, she's British. <sighs> So that's why she pronounces things so strangely. I thought she just had a weird thing. Yeah, it's no, it comes out as like a 
a mid-Atlantic accent uh, or transatlantic accent. That's what they did. So all of the actors in like the 20s and 30s and 40s, 50s, they, they they spoke kind of like this. And it was like a really weird, indistinguishable accent. Oh, and so it was a cross between British and New England type speech patterns. Oh. Did you watch her in the Hills reboot? Anybody? No. It was a tough. First of all, it was no. hard. That was a hard watch. She was a, she was like the new cast member for the one season Hills reboot they did a couple years ago. And uh, yeah, she her accent fluctuates a lot. But yeah, it's there. Well, anyway, um, so Ryan uh, gets a call from Marissa on her secret hospital phone and he goes to visit her and he very, very quickly tries to uh, hide because he hears Julie coming down the hall. So he hides in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Um, But don't worry, he brought her flowers. So take that, Luke. It's not a tiny bear. Um, and this is when Julie begins to introduce her uh, Mother of the Year plan, which is I'm going to have you analyzed by, um, what is that doctor's name? A therap- I don't remember the doctor's yeah. name, but this is such a bizarre thing to just have happen. To be like, I'm going to send yeah. her away to San Diego. I want sole custody of her, and I'm going to send her away to San Diego to be it's like, the be- hot, institutionalized. It's the best of both worlds. She gets sole custody, so she's getting one over on Tate Donovan, but then she doesn't have to deal with it because Dr. Therapist is telling her to send Marissa to um, – to, that's just going to be her name now uh, – sure. to San Diego. Um, but I, I know Ryan's answer, but Chelsea, as the, uh, as the, the, the podcast mother with the, with the maternal yeah. instinct, how do you – as the pod mom, how do you feel about Julie wanting to send Marissa to recovery? Well, she clearly has attachment issues, so sending her away seems like the absolute worst thing you can possibly do in this moment. Wow. Wow. I've studied attachment theory a lot this year, and I've never even put it together with Marissa. That's great. Great call by you, Chelsea. Well, thank you. Uh, Also, with who has attachment issues in this series is Ryan, and we'll see that pop up several times throughout. Just a quick note before you move on, Dylan. There was when we were talking about Dr. Kim. Um, there was a scene with uh, uh, Kirsten and Dr. Kim and Ryan all in the office, and mm-hmm. Dr. Kim mentions like, "Oh, he's got a good. He's got good test scores, but his grades are bad. He's been in juvie, but his personal essay was really good." Blah blah blah. And I was like, "I would love to read Ryan Atwood's personal essay. Oh my god, it's, it's yeah. got to be out there. It's you know he writes like Hemingway, just really short, intentional sentences." The fanfic is out there. I will find it before next week's episode. Yes. Um, Okay. So at this point, Ryan is uh, going to take his test, his entrance exam, if you will, to determine if he's smart enough to go to the jinx of of Southern California. And so Seth is just kind of chilling at home. And he is reading comic books, which means, guys, it's time for this episode's Comic Book Minute. God. So Seth is reading Batman issue 616 by Jeff Loeb, which is actually part nine of Hush, which was released on June 25th, 2003. You all may remember that we talked about Hush earlier. Uh, we've already seen him reading it. He was actually reading part two in an earlier episode. So that's some really sweet continuity, if I do say so myself. Also, on his bed, we see issue 47 of JSA, which stands for Justice Society of America, by David Goyer, which was released on July 3rd, 2013. That name might sound familiar to you because David Goyer co-wrote Nolan's Batman trilogy as well as Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, among others. This has been your Comic Book Minute. Okay, I'm back. I didn't get a Xanax. What did I miss? (laughs) Uh, David S. Goyer. But, you know, I'm glad you're back because we're about to talk about another very important introduction. In Seth's room, we meet for the first time when Summer walks in. We meet Captain Oates. That's right. So we've got, in this episode, a Bagel Slicer, Newport Harbor High School, and Captain Oates in the same mm-hmm. episode. 
It's a new um, season. It's huge. It's a new. <laughs> it's yeah. a new season. So I believe this was also the first. This either this one or the one before it was the first episode where Rachel Bilson gets credited in the not in the opening credits, but she shows up as guest starring Rachel Bilson whenever this episode actually starts. And so this is where things get really intense, and this is where you really start to realize that Ryan and Marissa have a very emotionally manipulative and abusive relationship because Ryan is in the middle of taking this test, Mm -hmm. and somehow Seth and Summer uh, are able to sneak past Dr. Kim, bust into the very nice wood-paneled room where Ryan is taking his test, and he's presented with a crossroads. Does he finish the test, or does he go and save Marissa from her mother? So somehow, but somehow Summer is able to convince Seth that this is more important to Ryan than the test. Like, we need him now. And because Summer's hot and she's in Seth's room, he just goes with it. Yeah. Yeah, this is clearly such an immature decision to make, but... It made me mad. I guess it worked out. Yeah, it made me mad. Bad choice by the kids. So they go and uh, they're doing their thing and they're going to save Marissa and she is going to not have to go. It's very reminiscent, I think intentionally so, of the model home episode where they're trying to save Ryan from having to do his own thing um, and be sent to, of course, uh, the system. But, okay, this brings up a question. Have you all ever seen a candy striper in real life? No. No, never. Only in Halloween costumes. Only in, like, Legs Avenue Halloween okay. costumes, which I think is where they got these costumes. Yeah, I have never seen a candy striper either, um, but uh, somehow Summer is a candy striper. She has an extra candy striper costume, but she's not delivering candy. She's delivering books, which Seth points off for being surprised that Summer reads books. Um, I feel like, the, you know, that, that first episode where where they're talking about anna reading comics and um and he goes you're you read comics and you're a girl like that's kind of believable but dude it's like he was surprised that she's read flaubert and i don't know i was a little bit like seth you gotta grow up a little bit maybe that's why she's read it five times though yeah yeah so i have a note here that says it's so hard to stay mad at luke And I feel like this episode is proof of that because even after everything that went on, you should hate him. He shows up with flowers. You're kind of annoyed. But then he does the bro thing and he helps them escape. Oh, he does. And so he's always been redeemable. Yeah. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Luke. And so they, they abscond, they successfully escape um, from Julie Cooper in the hospital and they end up going to Tate Donovan's sweet new bachelor pad. Um, And he walks in and they're just all there. I don't know what the purpose of this plan was because Tate does what I think is reasonable and he calls Julie and says, hey, she's here because he had just been told that, you know, he's doing the wrong thing and she wants sole custody. So, of course, he's got to call her. Um, But she, uh, Marissa escapes before Julie can get there and um, I guess hides out at the Coens. They're playing musical mansions and that's... (laughs) There's this beautiful uh, scene where there's finally a little bit of reconciliation between Julie and uh, and Marissa, and that's where the main plot, the big A plot, ends. Oh, most importantly, Ryan is apparently so smart he doesn't even have to finish a test in order to pass it and get into the school. So good job for him. He's now going to uh, Newport, and that's how that first plot ends. So, okay, a couple things. Um, one one correction on my end one correction on your end dylan i think the implication at the end was that ryan was able to go back and finish and take the test oh 
right? Is That's it? How- oh, it was. I thought that he just like was so smart he passed anyways. I thought that I was what he implied did because- to me. I've always taken it as the implication that he was able to let talk Dr. Kim into letting him. Uh, Sandy was able to talk Dr. Kim into allowing him to finish taking the test. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but before we move on into the B plot, because I know what it in- includes. I completely forgot a major, major part of the previous episode. We were so wrapped up in Marissa overdosing in Tijuana. I completely glossed over the part where Tate kisses Kirsten. Uh, Yeah, I actually, so Uh. I I took a note on that while I was watching it live. And I'm just going to read this to you um, because it's unfiltered. It says, does Tate talk too much with Kirsten about their relationship? And is Kirsten way too upfront about her relationship with Sandy? And, oh, no, Tate, stop. What are you doing? Tate, what are you doing? Kiss. So that's how I felt about it. Yeah, it was awkward. He talks a lot about being the bachelor, like being a bachelor. And I was like, would Tate have been a good bachelor? I looked up the bachelor actually started in 2002. So it would have been right around the same time. He would have been a great bachelor. Um, yes. But yeah, he the, the kiss was so awkward because he like went for it. She did not. She kind of, she let him do it, but she didn't kiss back, which made it real, real awkward. Yes. I think it kind of highlights his immaturity. Um, you know, he's not accepting, first of all, he committed the crimes. Now he's not accepting the the truth of the matter, which is, hey, you're going to have to pay restitution or else you're going to go to jail. He's just in complete denial about that. Uh, He makes a really awkward joke about uh, how he might be painting a jail cell that was almost the size of their college dorm or whatever like that. And then he tries to kiss Kirsten. Like he, uh, Marissa definitely likes him. He's definitely the more stable, more pleasant parent in her uh, other two options, but he's not a mature guy or necessarily even a good father. I would not argue that he tried to kiss. He did kiss Kirsten. Um, yeah. There was contact. Also, he did it like, it's like divorce day one. I'm trying to make out with other women. You got to strike while the iron is divorced. <laughs> so if you want to move back into this current episode in the B plot, yes. be my guest. So, so the, the, the B plot that I want to talk about is Sandy Cohen's like sellout. Sandy going to work uh, work at the big corporate law firm. First of all, uh, that's not how being a partner at a corporate firm works. You don't, you know, business firm. You don't show up and they don't give you a choice of all these cases that you want to like. That's that's what you do with an associate. So that's I didn't I didn't like that. But I mean that's a very niche thing. Um, but there's this new budding relationship between Sandy and as Kirsten says, yeah, yeah, as Kirsten says, his associate. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the chemistry in this episode is the same, better? I mean, how do you feel about her in this episode? It's budding. It's growing. Um, she feels like she – I could totally see this. This is a very real-life situation and because it's hard to figure out what she's doing because it feels flirty, but also she's mm-hmm. just – she's not doing anything wrong at all, but it does feel like a lot and – it just feels like a, a very adult real life situation that they handled very well because it would be confusing. Right. Like she's not necessarily like sexual, but it's very yeah. uh, combative in an exciting way. Yeah. Flirty, combative. A couple of things though. Like one, like I said, my, my favorite scene in the, and I'm not going to do this every week. I just wrote down like, what my favorite scene was, but like my favorite scene to watch in the previous episode was Seth and Summer in the diner. I just thought it was very well done and mm-hmm. it communicated a lot. My favorite scene in this episode was Kirsten standing in her door while Tate Donovan was outside. He like knocks on the door and asks for Sandy because he needs help with the divorce. Kirst- or Julie's asking for sole custody. 
Um, and Kirsten like walk, says, yeah, let me get his number. And she walks inside and she turns back around. And he's just, he's like, I'll just stand here. I'll just be outside. Mm-hmm. And they have a very like honest conversation about the kiss where it's just like, oh, that was just a dumb thing. Uh, Tate is very self-deprecating about it, talking about how stupid it was. Kirsten does the thing that we all do. Where she's like, well, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay. Um, so that was like a very, like very well-written, well-acted, real moment that I felt was very relatable. Yes. I agree. Very quickly, you mentioned the scene of them at the, at dinner to te- drinking tequila. It's Rachel and Sandy. That was my personal. That was my musical moment of the episode, um, because in the background of that scene, we hear "La Femme d'Argent" by the band Air, uh, one of my favorite bands, one of my oh, favorite bands growing Air. up. Uh, Moon Safari, arguably their best record. I, I would it probably it's regarded as their best record. Uh, they also did the entire soundtrack to Virgin Suicides. Um, but Air... I was convinced that I was going to lose my virginity to Playground Love. Great song. It didn't happen. Uh, but yeah, Air's, Air's La Femme d'Argent is uh, playing in the background of that episode. It's track one of their best record, Moon Safari. So everyone, check out Moon Safari. This has been Air Talk. NPR Fresh Air. <laughs> there you go. Chelsea, Ryan, and Dylan. But everyone, that's uh, that's episode eight. And that means that is the end of... The Marissa disc, disc two of season one of the OC. We did a whole disc in one pod. This was a daunting thing, but we did it. I'm proud of us. Now we just have to do it a bunch more. Boy, yeah, we will have to figure this out. So uh, we would love to hear from anyone who's listening. You can email us. You can reach out to us on Instagram, which we have now. Uh, You can email us at coenspod at gmail.com. C-O-H-E-N-S-P-O-D at gmail.com. Or on Instagram at coenspod, C-O-H-E-N-S-P-O-D. But remember, everyone, you can follow us on socials. You can uh, send us emails. But the best way that you can help this podcast is by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm going to be biased. And, you know, I feel like everyone on this pod will agree. I'd love it if it was a five-star review. But I just want you to review us. I want you to tell us what you think, what you like, what you don't like. The more reviews this show has, the more likely it is that it will show up when people type in the OC, when they're looking for podcasts. Help us grow our little family of adopted in Chino men. <laughs> Mash that subscribe button too. You can follow us on Twitter. Fun fact, episode two, I, I gave out the wrong name for my Twitter in case, you know, I don't know if anyone knows that, but I did. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at rake, R-A-Y-K-E. No D at the end. That's my Instagram. You can find me at Trini Woodstock. And you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at D-Y-L-N-R-W-N. It's Dylan Irwin spelled cool. So yeah, if you're watching along with us, we'll be doing disc three, episodes nine, 10, 11, 12 of season one of the OC. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Say bye, guys. Bye. See you later. Bye.